This week on New Mexico in Focus, how housing problems in New Mexico have been compounded by the pandemic. Albuquerque, like every, almost every other place in the country, you cannot afford a two bedroom place if you're working 40 hours at minimum wage. Plus, reaction to Deb Holland's confirmation hearings at the U.S. Senate. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. We have reaction to Ms. Holland's hearing and what appears to be her likely confirmation from both the line and a panel of Native women who says she's leading the way for the next generation. The line also talks about the state budget, which just passed the House of Representatives this week. We start with the tough choice faced by school boards across the state when it comes to sending kids and educators back to school. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition for Friday, February 26th. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer of New Mexico in Focus. We, as you just heard, have a packed show this week, and we're going to kick things off as usual with our line opinion panel. Our guest this week, Merritt Allen of Vox Optima, Crystal Ciarza, uh, and Eric Grego, former state senator. Good group uh, to talk about the topics we're going to have for you this week, and we kick it all off, as you just heard Gene Grant say, with uh, schools in New Mexico and the ongoing question of what to do about back-to-school learning, bringing kids back into the classroom. APS made a lot of headlines this week uh, by the school board deciding to stick basically with virtual through the end of the year, except for some small group-type settings implications in there for sporting uh, events and extracurricular activities as well. And uh, again, no easy, we've been talking about this week in and week out, no easy decisions here. And especially for a school district as large as APS, it becomes very difficult. But uh, wanted to start off with that conversation and also point your attention to the fact that the governor made some changes to the color code system this week, adding in a turquoise level uh, which is beyond green, allows for more reopening of businesses across the state. Uh, and so these things continue to change and evolve. And you can read a lot more about that on our website. But here now, hosting Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. The Albuquerque Public Schools Board of Education said last week that it's too soon to bring students and staff back to buildings, even in a hybrid model. Now, faced with a ticking clock and a short supply of vaccine, the board decided only certain groups of students should return. Other school districts have crafted a back-to-school building plan they think might work, but there's no size that fits all, certainly. And no guarantee COVID won't be spread. Here to hash it out, our line opinion panel, joined by Merritt Allen of Vox Optima Public Relations. Crystal Ciarza, another one of our PR pros. She's from Ciarza Social Digital. And a former state senator who now heads the New Mexico branch of the Working Families Party. That would be Eric Riego. Eric, thanks for joining us. All right, we've talked a lot about this since the calendar turned. Most educators agree kids learn better in a classroom setting, but that's a much different story when safety comes into the picture. And Merritt, the science out there that says this is doable there's also a ton of logistics to ramping up in-person learning. Does it make sense to call that part of the year just a wash and try to do it better when students return this summer? Is that a better way to do this? 
Well, I, I think uh, no one was surprised that APS um, uh, uh, has made this decision. It, it, it's simply too large and too large an effort uh, uh, to pull off uh, before the end of the school year and the expense to turn it on and uh, for the short amount of time. Uh, and I, I think it points to the fact that either APS has got to become more nimble in its management and bring in some real um, agile practices, or it needs to seriously look at being segmented. It's too big to succeed and too big to fail. Uh, just to make sure uh, we're all clear on what you're saying, you're talking about APS as a unit is too big, not the, the, the task itself, but it maybe breaking up APS, is that what you're saying? It, it's, it's unable to really respond quickly, yeah. just in terms of its physical plant, in terms of a lot of things with its current management style. So either it's got to kind of ramp, uh, change its, its perspective on how uh, it's managed, mm -hmm. or it, it seriously needs to be broken up. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Eric, the idea of vaccinations, uh, you're seeing this happening across the country. Some states are, you know, teachers are vaccinated. Some states aren't. We're in the aren't category over here. Was this a bigger issue than maybe the governor might have anticipated the idea of having teachers vaccinated before they went back to school? You know, I've, this is, as I'm no apologist for APS, but uh, this is an area where I think uh, other levels of government have sort of uh, really falling down on the job. I mean, I think if we would have had the, uh, a serious uh, uh, plan for implementing vaccinations and could have prioritized educators across the country, but certainly mm -hmm. New Mexico, because you know, uh, we're a small state and I think we're, we're actually in the top states in terms of getting vaccinations mm -hmm. out, but like just, just hands on has been the tough part. So I don't think it's unreasonable for educators to say, look, this is, you know, I have a, I have an elder at home or I'm, I'm worried about my own health. Um, and that they should be prioritized. Um, the other part of that, I think Merritt, Merritt alluded to this, is, you know, um, APS is a big school system, and to, to really be prepared, I mean, we, we kind of know what needs to be done. First and foremost, get as many people vaccinated, hopefully prioritize educators and educational staff, right? But, th but well, there's a lot of schools that are smaller and smaller districts that have figured this out in New Mexico and around the country, but, you know, you got to have, you got to have a mask mandate. You got to have the social distancing in the schools in place. You have to have the, the ventilation in place. You have to have that tracing. You know, we know all the pieces that make it as safe as possible. It's not a hundred percent guarantee as we all know, but um, the, the mere size of APS and the fact that I, you know, I don't think that other levels of government have been as uh, prepared to help a big school system like APS get ready, I think is part of the problem. And I have a 12 year old at home, you know, and um, he's doing fine virtually. It's all virtual where he goes to school. But, you know, um, he, like many kids, just really, really are, are, are just sick of this. So they, they got to have some human contact. And we as have to figure this out. And it can't just be on the governor. It can't just be on APS. Certainly can't just be on the federal government. Like we have to figure this out sooner rather than later. Because I do think the social emotional piece of this is really going to take a deeper toll than folks, folks realize, not just like grades. I mean, but really, what does it mean if you're losing a year of social interaction, you know? I'm afraid of the studies that are going to be coming out three to five years from now and show us all just exactly what you're saying. It, it's troublesome. You know, Crystal, interesting um, that Merritt brought up APS and that ability to manage this due to its size. But you got, you know, districts out there like Taos and Farmington, they have different plans to go back to in person. Is this really a size question or is it really just about competence and getting ready and, you know, doing all the things that needs to be done? What, what, what's your sense of it? 
So my sense on it is actually based from doing the actual research. You know, mm -hmm. I spent some time speaking to educators before knowing that this was going to be a topic on, on the panel today. And I spent some time also looking at the independent school perspective, especially as an independent school parent. Right. And um, it is size. It's also tactical implementation. It's also demographics. And why do I say it in that fashion? So the size of the district that many people don't realize is that APS is one of the top 10 largest school districts in the country. Implementation is also something to consider that um, every, um, every school has about, you know, a couple thousand kids that have custom plans um, to their to their lessons in, in terms of what uh, classes they attend, what programming they should be in, what specialty groups they should be placed of, whether it be special education, athletics, or something along those lines. And then the third part is, um, you know, the, the logistics of it all. So the perspective of time is something to take into consideration. The teachers only have about uh, five uh, five weeks left to teach after, theoretically speaking, after spring break, which is when approximately in school would be. And five, and, and doing a, um, and from the teachers, or at least from some of the individuals that are in the union, they feel that five weeks, uh, overhauling their curriculum for just five weeks of instructional learning um, is not worth uh, the effort, according to what teachers are saying. And the vaccination causes major problems because a teacher's job is to make is to help a student. That's their mission, and that is their mo. Why they wake up every morning, but at the end of the day, they're there to protect their own families, and their families are first. Which is the last point that I wanted to make about why this is such a, a challenging, challenging issue is that APS is so large that the demographics of students are the the uh, the demographics and studies of the different families and the different teachers differ that nobody can agree. So uh, in a recent board meeting, they referenced uh, in the APS board meeting, they referenced that um, they did a survey among the teachers and the parents, 75% of teachers don't feel like they should be going back into the classroom, considering the timing and also the vaccination issue. On the flip side, they when they interviewed the, the parents, depending on what part of town that you went to, 75% of parents felt that they should go back. Another part of town said 75% of the parents shouldn't go back. Nobody can agree. And, and, and uh, even though they have a zoning method of management in um, APS, the, uh, the way that the, the district is structured, this is, is now eye-opening mm -hmm. even more so now in mm -hmm. terms of um, what to deal, uh, how to deal with this certain issue. That's a good Excellent points there. Hey, Merritt, let me read you a quote from the governor. I know you know this. Governor's office wrote uh, to the journal, said in part, quote, districts and local leadership can and should debate the when and where, but there should be no debate about the fundamental fact of whether it can be done safely in the first place. Do you agree with that? I, I, I do. I, I do. And uh, I think we see this uh, nationally. This is uh, coming uh, from not just the administration, but also the CDC. Uh, we also, uh, I think to uh, Eric's point, um, our children are really missing out on uh, uh, just key factors in their growth and development of being with other kids, of being out of the house. This is not uh, good for our kids, not just from the learning point, but from, from the social, uh, from the social uh, piece of it. Um, you know, and, and vaccine is not a cure-all because there's not a vaccine approved for children under 14. Right. So that's, right. that, that, that's not a panacea. 
Um, there are kids uh, getting in-person learning. I know because I have a relative who uh, works with special needs children and she's been in the classroom since October. So she has been vaccinated. Um, I, I, I think ultimately, no, APS is not, and I, I think on a previous show, I said there's no way APS is going to go back to school um, in the classroom or hybrid uh, for the 2021 school year. Right. I think what is going to have to happen is we are going to um, have to give every child from K-12 who has been enrolled in public schools during the pandemic, they're going to have to have an extra year. Uh, yep. That's, yeah, that's going to be a discussion. Eric, real quick, 20 seconds if you can. This idea of sports, is there a case for doing in-person activities but not in-person learning? Is that compatible? Yes. You know, we're, uh, my son's, you know, taking swim and swim lessons uh, uh, outside of the, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's, they're going crazy in the room. They need some interaction. We can do this safely. If we can do it safely and people are responsible and follow the best guidance that we're getting, I think we can. So that might be a place to start. If they're outside, if they follow all the protocols, mm-hmm. I don't think it's an outrageous request to say, can we do something to get these kids uh, some kind of you know, activity and interaction? Right. Maybe the classroom isn't, we're not ready for the, but I think we should at least try to do some of these other sports and, and other activities in a safe way. You know, it's interesting. I was watching uh, some of the coverage in Houston and one of the affiliates out there last week during the big freeze out there. And they cut to the sports and they were showing a high school sports uh, uh, girls basketball game. All the competitors were masked on the court. It was it was really interesting watching them buzzing up and down the court, you know, throwing hoisting up, uh, you know, shots with masks on. It can be done if we want to do it. You know, go ahead, Crystal. Did you say something? Uh, it was East Mountain High has started sports this week. They're a charter school in APS. Mm-hmm. They found a way. There you go. Example made. We're out of time for this one. We'll get reaction to Deb Holland's confirmation hearings next. The other big news story of the week, Representative Deb Holland. The confirmation hearings have started for her this week uh, towards her nomination to head up the Department of the Interior. Of course, this would be history-making and groundbreaking in this country. If she is confirmed, she would be the first Native American to hold a cabinet position in United States history. So a lot of eyes were on this. This was confirmation in just a committee. So there are more steps to take. But all eyes really across the nation and definitely here in New Mexico were on her testimony this week and this first round of hearings. And we gathered together a group of women Uh, Native American women who are watching very closely to those proceedings and have followed Deb Holland's career, and uh, no doubt they are super excited about this potential and what it means uh, for them and for their culture and their identity and what it means for the United States if that nomination goes through, which it looks like it probably will at this point, even though there is some opposition, especially from the oil and gas industry and uh, some members of Congress who see and have actually categorized some of her attitudes around the oil and gas industry as, as hostile, to say the least. So we are going to kick off that conversation. Uh, correspondent Antonio Gonzalez with our group of Native American women talking about Deb Holland and uh, the landmark confirmation hearings this week. 
The eyes of Native America were glued to screens this week as New Mexico Congresswoman Deb Holland sat for confirmation hearings as Joe Biden's pick for Secretary of the Interior. Ms. Holland, whose Laguna and Hemis Pueblo, would be the first ever Native American cabinet secretary. In front of a divided energy and natural resource committee, she touted a record of bipartisan bills. She's also been a strong advocate for indigenous and environmental issues, something that didn't sit well with senators who are closely aligned with the oil and gas industry. Now, if confirmed, Ms. Holland will head the agency responsible for land and resource management and Indian affairs. This week, NMAF correspondent Antonia Gonzalez got reaction and insight from a group of Native women about an historic moment for Indian country. Kiara Toya, Holly Cook-Makara, Shia Lucero, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you. Uh, this historic nomination has created buzz and excitement across Indian country. Uh, Deb Holland is being looked at someone who is connecting to Native values and also a lot of people are calling her Auntie Deb. She's more than just a politician to Indian country. Uh, Shaya, you're from the same tribal community as Deb Holland. Uh, why is her nomination being so celebrated by Native people? Um, I'm, I'm happy to say that Deb and I are from the same tribe. Um, I'm also Pueblo of Acoma and we're actually from the same village here in Laguna. And so our village is the most um, traditional of all the different villages here in Laguna. So Deb knows like the Pueblo politics of not being able to be in positions such as the governor. So I feel that her, by her moving into this aspect to be a political lawmaker for everybody is her way of bringing that Pueblo woman's um, voice uh, to our tribes and to our country. And so it, 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 it does give me chills um, because whether you're a supporter of her or not, she is going to be the protector of our mother. And so we have to make sure that we honor her and support her in that aspect. And Holly, you have a lot of experience on the national level with DC politics and legislation, lobbying and advocating on tribal issues. Uh, Holland told the Senate committee this week that she's someone who's able to connect um, and listen to tribal communities and work on bipartisan issues. Why is representation important? You know, thank you for that question. That it is something that I've, uh, I think has been, the answer to that question has been exemplified by some of the tweets and statements that we've seen come out um, from Senator Daines, from Senator Barrasso, and their, their tweets and statements and their voicing their concerns over calling Congresswoman Holland a radical for her views that are completely in line with President Biden's climate change agenda and views on drilling on public lands, fracking, et cetera. Um, they come from states with significant tribal populations, 10 and Alaska, 11% of the population, 10% in Montana. They also millions of acres of tribal trust lands within the boundaries of their states. And their statements and views did not reflect a tribal perspective at all. And in fact, Congressman Rosendale, in response to the tribal concerns that were aired from Montana tribal leaders, from State Senator Jonathan Windyboy to Tribal Chairman uh, Andy Work uh, at, Fort at 
Fort, Fort Peck, I think. Uh, and uh, he, ca- he called those views pathetic and, and doubled down on the statements that they'd made. So that to me only underscored why we need a voice and a presence like Deb Holland to lead the Department of Interior and bring our voice to the table, to the actual table at the cabinet and throughout the Department of Interior. And just to add to that of looking at a native way of thinking, native representation, native views on um, the world, just expand on that a little bit, Holly. Deb's approach and that that uh, Native women, as we all know, look at our panel, um, have been have, have been leading the way for a long time, and and both in our communities and without, and um, certainly I think have led the way in in getting the support, our community support, and really standing behind Deb as she's gone through this, the run up to the nomination and beyond. But her approach and her recognition as the highest ranking freshman in introducing and passing legislation um, in the 116th Congress, the last Congress, uh, she passed more bills than anyone else in her class with bipartisan support, which Congressman uh, Don Young from a Republican from Alaska who walked across the Capitol and introduced her and repeatedly emphasized her bipartisan uh, efforts to pass legislation, her willingness to work together, her willingness to listen and to consider the views from a 360 perspective. I think that reflects how we work in tribal communities. We don't consider singular views. We consider community impacts. We consider everyone that's affected. And I think that Congresswoman Holland will bring that to the interior and she has a demonstrated track record of doing it as a member of the house. And Kira, you're also from a community Holland is connected to. Um, she has Hamas Pueblo heritage. You're a youth leader yourself and work on uh, native youth uh, issues nationally. What are you hearing about Holland from uh, people from native youth in your community and beyond? Uh, especially in my community, I think we are really excited to see Holland. Uh, especially in this position. I have friends all over um, Indian country and we're all like really excited, really happy to see her. We're really excited. I, we're all just like happy and just praying that she just gets through it. And Shia, uh, you're a businesswoman, a mother, science and engineering are really important to you. You've also seen the impacts of COVID-19 in your community. Uh, Holland, during her confirmation hearing, said she would move forward President Biden's agenda on pandemic recovery. Uh, what do you hope she could do for Indian country in her capacity if confirmed as secretary? I think her biggest impact is getting Native Americans a voice. Um, you know, even though the Department of Indian Affairs is maybe 10% of the interior's um, entire job, um, we've never been able to bring our issues to the forefront. And so, you know, like Senator Murkowski brought up the fact that, you know, Alaskan tribes are much different than the lower 48 tribes and how the CARES Act funding was distributed was, was a real huge um, impact on the Alaskan natives. And just 
a lot of people that, you know, I was listening on Clubhouse and I was listening, I was watching um, Twitter feeds all morning. And a lot of the buzz was that people didn't realize the nature of the, the or the differences between the two. And so something like that in educating others about about our Native American views is going to be very vital in having her as our voice, but also going back to some of the science because she kept reiterating science. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to follow science. Science is important. And it is important because a lot of our energy is dependent on non-renewable sources. Mm-hmm. So I was even excited to hear like the senator from Maine talk about offshore wind energy. I was just like, whoa, I completely forgot about that. Mm-hmm. And to bring things like that to our country, to think about science and energy in things in, in, in that manner, um, I think would help us not only maintain those jobs, but also would help, you know, um, Deb kind of think in a broader picture. Um, and, and, and just, just, I, that is going to be very, very helpful to Indian country. Um, and then as well as the rest of America. Holly, uh, there's much support from tribal leaders, directors of national native organizations, elected Uh, officials, community members, there's advocacy going on right now. Can you tell us what is Deb for Interior Week of Action? What is that about? Uh, The Deb for Interior Week of Action has been put together by uh, leadership at uh, Illuminative and the uh, Native Voters Alliance, Native Organizers Alliance and Advanced Native Political Leadership. They have joined forces and really they have tremendous skills in terms of providing social media content, providing uh, the link to the letter that has generated nearly 15,000 letters going into members of the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. And that will be redirected. Uh, The committee vote um, for Congresswoman Holland is is next Wednesday on March 2nd. So there's always a a week intervening. And so as soon as she is, and notably just before we went on the air, Antonia, um, Senator Manchin um, put out a statement that he is voting for uh, Congresswoman Holland, which which guarantees her passage out of committee. He He had said he was uncommitted two days ago. Um, so that, that really indicates this was a successful week for her. So please keep an eye out. Um, the Illu- Illuminative.org or Illuminatives, if you go on their, their social media feed or the Native Voters, Native Organizers Alliance or Advanced Native Political, there are, there's social media content, tweet storm, talking points, uh, pieces that we can do to amplify the public support. And it, it also, I think really, uh, epitomizes this, the synergy that took place that I've never seen before in, in 23 years of doing politics um, on the federal level of the talent that we have in place on the grassroots side, on the political side, Deb herself, having all coming together, kind of hitting our stride at just at the right time to play that critical role of support. Um, and then there's the organic um, non, non-tribal community, the the climate change organizations, the conservation groups that have come together um, and are also all of that noise, all of those calls and letters that are going into the Senate Committee um, on Energy and Natural Resources is really critical. 
And um, as I said, we need a 50, uh, do the power sharing agreement, giving the 50-50 split in the Senate, we only need, so a 50-50 vote means that a nominee will advance, a presidential nominee will advance. Um, Senator Daines and Senator Barrasso have indicated that they will put a hold on, on her nomination, which means Senator Schumer will then have to file cloture. That, that process procedure will add another three to five days, depending on which day they file it on. Uh, so I don't expect to see a vote for um, a floor vote um, for Congresswoman Holland until mid-March. So we do have some work to do um, in the intervening weeks to ensure that uh, she does get across the finish line. And uh, Kiera, uh, as you touched on a little bit, uh, just the meaning of having Deb Holland, a Pueblo woman, a native woman in already who is a con congresswoman and making strides on that level, but somebody who's been nominated to lead the interior department. What does that mean for young native women and girls? And what does it mean personally for you? I, uh, I look up to her so much and <laughs> she is one of my favorite people and like what she's done um within like the land and like all of the like the policy the laws that she passed and the policies that she's done i know she is a big inspiration to a lot of young girls and a lot of um native women and especially those who want to follow in her footsteps just placing down the foundation for us so we, um, and those like young, like young women and girls can just finish what she was started. Well, thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts today. And I'm sure the excitement is going to continue in Indian country as people watch the confirmation process for Deb Holland for Interior Secretary play out. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Also wanted to talk about the Deb Holland confirmation hearings with our line opinion panel. Uh, they all watched her testimony this week as well and have a lot of insights into how she did and how she was prepared and how she answered some of the questions. You're going to hear a lot of talk about how she uh, reiterated time and time again that she would be taking her direction from the president. So her thoughts and opinions on these things are one thing, but she would be operating under the discretion of the president and his marching orders, so to speak. I think it's a really interesting conversation. Again, we have Merritt Allen and Crystal Ciarza on this line panel, both communications specialists. So they have a very keen eye when they're watching the, this testimony and how all of the action played out. So here is that conversation. Hey, rave reviews from our panel of Native Americans who pointed out Joe Manchin's vote goes a long way towards winning a nomination. How did the line think the Congresswoman did and what did we learn about her plans at the Department of the Interior? Eric, this pick was a big nod to progressives and conservative senators went after Ms. Holland for some of her views. She parried an awful lot, doing it well, saying she was advancing Mr. Biden's agenda, not her own. Was that a good enough distinction? Did you feel a good separation there? Yeah, look, she's been a leader on, on renewables and green economy stuff. And, you know, every and part of the reason why so many people and so many conservation groups supported her, not to mention, you know, native groups and many, many others, is because she has been bold on this, you know, dire need to transition to a 
to a non-fossil fuel-based economy, right? So, but you know, when you get up for a position like this, um, you know, opponents are going to use this as an opportunity to kind of come after you. So I think she did the best she could without compromising her core values and saying, yeah, we're going to do everything. You know, we're going to, yeah, I, I know I've said that we really need to make this transition uh, a priority and make sure that, that all the communities will be affected or are prioritized. And she didn't, she didn't, you know, flip-flop or sell out. She said, look, I'm going to, she was clear. There was one question from, I think the, 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 the ranking member where she said, you know, you've said these outrageous things about fracking and about Green New Deal and so on. And, you know, do your values matter? Or do Biden's value? And she's like, look, I work for the president. Like, you know, my, my own agenda is secondary, right? That, that, but I think that sent a real signal to both people who were worried that she's going to be pushed to be much more sort of in line with the mansions of the world. And it said, look, I'm going to take my orders from the president, obviously. Um, and he's not anywhere near she, where she is in terms of, of being progressive on, on climate change. Uh, but but she, you know, the fact that she's there and she has a record of being a leader uh, in, 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 you know, trend, it is this just climate change that we're talking about. I think um, she did the best she could. She did parry. I feel like there were a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of cheap shots coming at her. I think the bottom line, though, is she got Manchin. You know, I still don't know where Kristen Cinema from Arizona is. She's been sort of on the fence. Right. And if she doesn't get Kristen Cinema. Um, she's going to need to get one of the Republicans. I, I still think that's possible. I think she she has a few Republicans who aren't speaking out who will probably end up voting for her. Um, but I think overall, I was very, very happy to hear that Manchin wasn't going to hold it up, hold it up, because that would have been a real disaster for her and for the president. And the fact that he didn't let it hang out there for, for 48, 72 hours. He just came straight out. That's a big difference. Hey, Merritt, a lot of deflecting from Ms. Holland about some of her views on Keystone Pipeline, fracking, all that kind of thing. And as Eric mentioned, she didn't you know, walk away from any of this, but she did not either dig her heels in terribly deep either. I'm asking this in, in this context. Let's assume success here and she gets the nomination. All these things are not going to go away. It just seems to me it's a prism how she'll be viewed by a lot of these folks in these western states who have a, a little bit of anxiety about her. What's your, what's your feeling on that? Well, I, I, think, um, I think that was smart to um, not uh, 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 be unequivocal on the issue because there is so much drama right now and there is so much more to the department of the interior besides stone and fracking licenses frankly uh fracking leases um uh and in the west we also you know we kind of need wildfire management that's kind of a really uh big deal there there's a lot more uh that uh, the secretary of the interior um, has to manage. And I think uh, she also needs um, a clearer picture of what the president wants. So mm -hmm. um, to yeah, the point of that, it is the president's uh, policy and not her own agenda. She was uh, smart to not go full bore on the uh, on those questions. Mm -hmm. And we also, uh, you know, really have to see where the, uh, where the economy goes, where the states who are relying, uh, I, I think it's Alaska, Wyoming, and New Mexico who are the most dependent on fracking, right. um, and how the economic recovery after the pandemic goes, because I don't, I, I just don't think uh, the country is going to torpedo uh, three states who may already kind of be in trouble uh, over this. 
we're okay for four years so we could actually get through this administration with no new licenses. Keystone, I don't think anybody cares. No one in their right mind should care about Canadian oil. That's, that's <laughs> slated for China, you know, right. even for our use, for God's <laughs> sake. Right. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't see that um, as a real, a big deal, but they're real touchstone emotional issues right. um, yeah. that activists are spun up on and uh, bring to the forefront to, pol to, to polarize people uh, mm -hmm. for, for, whatever, uh, for whatever purpose. So I do, I do think she handled that well because ultimately it is uh, the White House who is making the decision on, uh, on those policies that are uh, very touchy right now. You know, Crystal, when you think about it, um, it, 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 this goes, again, assuming success and she gets the nomination, and she is our uh, Secretary of the Interior, you're talking about, I think she mentioned 90% of the employees don't work in Washington, D.C., of those 70,000. Uh, this is a really fascinating department, but I gotta say, these Western senators have showed, so, showed in their hand, uh, you know, Ranking Member Barrasso from Wyoming that Eric mentioned, uh, Mr. Lee from Utah, Ms. Murkowski, these are very different senators when it comes to energy stuff. And I just got to think, she is the point person for anything that's going to happen here moving away from fossil fuels, almost like she's almost set up for it versus Joe Biden in a way. She's going to be the face of it, of, the, of this transition. It's going to be difficult. How, what's your anticipation yeah. for that? Oh, it definitely will be difficult. But mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we always, that I think that the media throughout this entire process forgets that she represent, represents the people that from the land that we stole. So I think that's kind of an important perspective to take into consideration that mm -hmm. she's rep rep representing the indigenous peoples. And of course they have every right to say something about the land, especially the years of, of turmoil that we've, we've put them through, um, native peoples put, have been put through. Mm -hmm. In terms of the Western states and the, and the local states, like I was watching the way that she was answering a lot of the, the debate and the conversations and it's pure, you know, true, true communication strategy, right? Where, you know, you say the words, this is not my agenda. This is the president's agenda. Mm -hmm. I'm executing the president's agenda. I fully understand that. But I think one of the things that people forget in, in, a, in a conversation about, you know, secretaries of interiors, et cetera, is that um, her, the reason why she's questioned so much is fascinating because I, I think that people just don't know her enough on what her capabilities are in mm -hmm. terms of, of, of management. And, and one of the things I also think that people don't realize, especially since we know this as New Mexicans, she actually works so much better behind the scenes than you know, in, in public speeches or whatever that might be. She's not, she, I always like to compare her to Senator, um, to Senator Heinrich, that he's not as vocal as like Senator Udall. Senator Udall on the other hand is very like gunslinging and as I'm watching a lot of the, the rhetoric that, you know, a lot of the Western senators are saying about um, energy, one of the phrases that I found really fascinating that I do believe she, she follows is um, it's innovation, not elimination. Right. And that's a key that I think that she's going to be leading within her, um, within her, her new department. And that's, new department. that's the needle she has to thread right there, that innovation versus because job loss is going to be a big issue for this administration as this thing goes on. We're going to have to hold it there and keep an eye on that committee for a vote, certainly.
Well, it is no surprise we've talked about it a bunch on the show. Times are tough. People are getting hit hard in the pocketbook on all fronts because of the COVID-19 pandemic. No doubt you've seen gas prices on the increase. Another big increase here, especially in Albuquerque, that we have noticed and heard a lot from folks about is the price of rent of apartments and homes uh, skyrocketing prices. And that is compounded and part to do with the fact that we just don't have the inventory of some other cities. And so we wanted to dive into that a little bit now. And correspondent Megan Kamrick hosting this segment now. We talked to a young man who had quite the adventure, as you will hear, in finding a place to rent. And we also have line contributor and friend of the show, show Serge Martinez, who focuses a lot on this. He's also a professor at the UNM Law School. You've heard us talk to him in the past about evictions and the evictions moratorium that is in place during the pandemic, but obviously uh, skyrocketing rental prices and rental rates uh, factors into this conversation a lot too, and, and is a result of a lot of the same problems as evictions. And so um, great conversation here about just what a crazy world this can be and what you need to know if you're in the market for a rental property. So here now, Megan Kamrick. Thomas and Serge, thank you for joining us today. Thomas, you have been searching for a property to rent for around half a year. You finally found a place this month. Can you tell us about the trials and tribulations that made this search so difficult and so long? Absolutely. So um, finding a space, uh, first and foremost, we need to acknowledge the pandemic. It's always crazy trying to find something when lots and lots of leasing agents don't want to show in person because of the condition. And I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. You know, safety is incredibly important, but trying to move into a space sight unseen is kind of terrifying, especially with the expectation. A lot of spaces that we were even considering were like, well, you need to have a leasing agreement in place before we even let you see it. And then if Wow. That if you don't like it, then we can talk about canceling the leasing agreement. And that just didn't really sit right with me. That wasn't something that I wanted to do. And that was, I thought that'd be a one-off, but we, I toured 16 different places and I threw out about 30 just because their expectation was I'd have to have something in place with them, either an approval or a leasing agreement before they'd even let me see it. Wait, so it's that, a binding leasing agreement? Yes, like it's you, a binding leasing agreement. They were like, we'd let you cancel the lease if you didn't like it, but they sent over an entire copy of the lease expecting the binding agreement to be signed before they'd even- Before you even it. saw it. Yes, wow. which absolutely sat wrong with me. And it wasn't like independent leasing agents. These were large rental companies that were doing this. Um, huh. It was kind wow. of terrifying. So, and what about application fees? Okay, well, we saw a lot of that. The application fees, they weren't unreasonable. They hovered between $45 and $75, with most of them hovering at right about $50. That's what they claimed it cost to run the background check and do all that kind of stuff. But that seemed pretty standard. Um, the space I'm in now, it was a $50 application fee. Um, Did you pay a lot of those? Yeah, I ended up paying about 12 or 13 application fees. All of them accepted me, but that was just the process to get in the door to see the space. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
That, that can really add up. So where did you stay till you found a spot? I'm very fortunate. So my partner and I both have family in town. I stayed with extended family, an aunt, and then very briefly my grandfather, well, he needed help. And then my partner was staying with his parents. But if we didn't have that, it would have been absolutely terrifying trying to find a spot with nowhere to stay. Um, I mean, we started looking in earnest maybe August or September of last year. Um, and we'd been toying with the idea since March or April of last year. Um, so we were doing online stuff, but you know, feet to pavement started in August and it took until this month to be somewhere. The New York Times recently reported that Albuquerque is seeing one of the highest surges in rental price increases during the pandemic in the nation. That's around 8%. Serge, why do you think we are seeing this increase right now? I mean, it's, you know, it's, there's few, less housing and more demand, right? The, the math is, is pretty straightforward. We have uh, in Albuquerque seen, <clears throat> excuse me, housing availability go down, housing affordability go down as well. And um, the, the number of folks who are trying to get into the places that do become available are, you know, it's, it's just growing. There's certainly, a, the market is a lot more, there's a lot less, you know, fluid right now. People aren't moving, and and especially when it comes to you know buying buying homes, those things get homes on the market get snatched up very quickly right now. And some of that is pandemic related, but some of it is also you know systemic stuff about supply of housing uh, and this the demand for it. And what you know Thomas has talked about is is perhaps like I said, it's maybe situational to some extent in terms of what we're seeing nationwide about housing elasticity and and availability in the market right now but the difficulty of finding a place to live is you know especially for folks who are trying to find some place affordable in albuquerque is has been going on for quite some time it's there's just not enough housing that's able to meet the the needs or the resources of the folks who need it is there a disconnect between housing costs and salaries and that's also a dynamic i mean here? Absolutely, you know that's that's housing affordability comes two ways, right? The cost of the the housing and the resources and the income of the people who are paying it. And Albuquerque, like every, almost every other place in the country, you cannot afford a two bedroom place if you're working forty hours at minimum wage. Uh, and mm-hmm. and that's not atypical. That's not unusual. Like I said, I think there's no state or county around the country. There are probably discrete municipalities where you can. But in the state of New Mexico, you know, Albuquerque is not unique. We have housing prices have outstripped minimum wage. And so folks who are down at that end of the market are just, they're priced out. They can't afford a two bedroom apartment unless you work multiple jobs or have multiple people working or double up or do something along those lines. I mean, we've seen this in places, many cities, um, with an influx of, we all want more jobs here, well-paying jobs, um, things like Netflix, Amazon's building a warehouse. Do we have any indication if there's an influx of that and if it's driving some of these dynamics? I mean, it, the, any influx like that and you know, for builders as well and developers, the economics are point towards the higher end of the market. There's no, it doesn't make economic sense to build affordable housing without deep subsidies, significant mm-hmm. subsidies or other ways to you know, make sure folks can afford it. Starter homes, right? We've seen fewer and fewer of the, the starter home market, um, 
homes being built here in Albuquerque because it just makes more, you know, there's more money in building bigger houses. So what that does is there's more housing available for the people who have, you know, the means to do it. But for everyone else, the supply is decreasing and demand is increasing. And you see what happens. The math is not hard. We're also in the middle of a pandemic uh, that's financially devastating. How does this increase or complicate, um, I'm sorry, how does this increase the complication of living situations for everyone involved? Well, I mean, you know, you have, when you have reduced incomes, that makes it hard for folks to continue to pay rent or to meet, you know, to, if they want to move into a new place to be able to show that they're, they meet any income guidelines. Um, you have the, just the, the reduced amount of money going into the system, you know, disincentivizes landlords from putting places on the market if they're, if they're not going to be able to uh, get folks paying the rent. It's, you know, it's, the, it's an ecosystem and without the influx of money that comes in, everybody suffers. Uh, if we don't prioritize housing as something that we want to make sure that we make it accessible to everybody. Um, have you heard stories like Thomas's? Is, are, is this, you're hoping this is extremely unique, but it sounds like it, some of the things he's encountering are systemic. No, I mean, definitely, you know, in my experience is more with the lower end of the rental market, um, folks who are desperate to find affordable housing. And, and the fact is in Albuquerque, it is a real challenge to find affordable mm -hmm. housing um, because the, you know, the inventory is, is not there and people, more and more people are being pushed into a worse economic situation. There's more competition for affordability. And, you know, there's never a one-to-one -one match. There are lots of people who are in affordable housing that could afford more, but for whatever reasons are not. So, you know, there's a miss, there's sometimes a mismatch between supply and demand that comes from that way. But, you know, the, the city is working to increase affordable housing and whatnot in terms of hundreds of units, whereas the numbers of families who are looking for affordable housing are in the, you know, the last number I saw was about 18,000 and that was from a couple of years ago, right? Wow. So, so the, the story that Thomas tells is one that, yeah, there's lots of folks who just cannot find a place that meets their needs that they can do. And so they end up living in places that are lower quality, that are, um, they're doubled up, they're crowded or accepting whatever they can get from a landlord who knows that they have the power to do that. Uh, it sounds like they're kind of taking advantage of that. Um, this and upward trend. <laughs> Yeah, this upward trend doesn't just pertain to rental price, the surge, um, as you mentioned, has the Albuquerque's housing market is seeing similar jumps. Of course, we have very low mortgage interest rates right now. Yeah. What does this mean for the future of the market or for younger or lower income people? I mean, I'm assuming Thomas would eventually like to be a homeowner someday. We, we just actually <laughs> looked at home ownership. My partner and I have pretty substantial savings that we've accrued. We were looking at, you know, in the situation being homeowners as opposed to renters, because we both intend to be here for a long time. And it, it just wasn't feasible. There were no starter homes really that fit our needs. Um, I mean, granted, we had some kind of funny demands. We wanted to be in decent areas of town, but you know, approaching 165 to $200 a square foot in this city is ridiculous. Um, we wanted to be homeowners. It, it wasn't feasible at this time. Mm. What does that mean for Albuquerque, Serge? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, I don't think it's good, right? If we can only, if you can only buy a home if you're at the high end of the market and there's no 
affordable housing for rental and other other you know folks who are down in that end of the market, what we're going to see is you know a, a probably a less extreme version of what you see in other places where people just get pushed out, where there's no there's no ability for younger people especially to be able to become homeowners or for folks who have historically you know usually that's people of color. Um, uh, communities of color aren't able to have that wealth that they've already got, can't buy a home, which is historically a source of wealth generation for American families. And, and you'll see the market, you know, continue to spread the haves and the have nots. And down at the lower end, that's also a problem because of the availability. And prioritizing this is, is really important, right? As I've said many times, housing is a human right. And there's a straight line between commodification of it and a decrease in housing stability by treating it as something that we are gonna put resources into and make sure everyone has the accessibility, that's how we address this problem, not by hoping the market will solve this. It is not, it will not, it cannot. So Thomas, as we wrap up, we've been hearing what a headache this process was for you to go through. Any advice for someone trying to navigate the market in Albuquerque? Oh, goodness. I, I don't necessarily know if my advice is any good, but do lots and lots and lots of research. There are online portals that work pretty well. Um, I got a lot more success in phone calls, actually. I know a lot of young people are scared to pick up the phone and call. I don't know what it is. I know I get dread when I see the phone ring, but um, calling was very helpful. Um, and look at places that don't necessarily say they have availability. Like where I am right now, a unit just became available and we swooped right in. It was very much a timing thing. Had we not acted very quickly, we wouldn't be here. So um, be willing to circle back if you like something, keep contacting and see if they have availability, see if they've got timelines. That was, that's the best I can say. And, uh, and hope that you find somebody honest. I mean, that, that's very important in this process. Hope that you find somebody honest. I want to thank you both for talking with us. Um, these are really important issues to keep a sustainable, viable community. So thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Megan. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Megan. All righty. Time to head back to the line opinion panel now, and we're turning to the roundhouse. About three weeks left in this marathon legislative session, which has been unlike any other as it's held all basically virtual, public not allowed into the roundhouse. So a lot being done by Zoom for sure. One of the big things, obviously the number one priority of any legislative session is the budget, which made it out of the House this week and uh, is an interesting look in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic and the overall economic outlook in the state. Um, and a lot of debate here, as you will uh, hear from the line opinion panelists about whether or not the budget that is making its way now over to the Senate is a bold step or a fairly safe step in terms of the revenue projections, which aren't quite as bad as they were a little while ago, or you might think in the midst of this ongoing pandemic. So here now, let's turn it back over to Gene Grant and the line opinion panelists. We have a budget and it's moving at the legislature. On Wednesday, the House overwhelmingly passed the funding measure for next year. It's about a 5% increase in spending, 4.6 directly, with a lot of money in it for pandemic relief and one-time costs. And Eric, as our former senator here, let me ask you this. We saw this one-time spending for the last adjusted budget, and lawmakers, have, unless I'm missing something, 
seems to have wedded themselves to this as a way to weather the pandemic. Do, you know what I'm saying? Do you like this approach? Is this going to stick or, or, or is this just the appropriate way to handle the moment? You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big Keynesian. I think a lot of folks up there, you know, we have to have at times like this with the economy struggling, we have to have the public sector sort of prime the pump if we're ever going to get anywhere near the full employment in terms of you know, getting people back to work and investing in core services for people, right? So I think it's the right thing to do. I know some some of the fiscal conservatives are saying, oh, you know, we got we to tighten our belts. I think that's exactly the wrong thing to do. I think that's why uh, at the federal level, there's a, been, a, been a big a big investment. And that's, by the way, that's part of this package. The federal money is, is a that's big right. part of this, this package. It's about but two, to, two to three billion uh, we're anticipating coming in. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the right thing to do. We Obviously, we're going to have to figure this out for the long term in terms of how fiscally sound we need to be. But I think in the short term, we absolutely need the state and the feds to really pump some money into this economy, get people back to work, build things, make sure we have the core services covered. And I think that's the right approach. I hope that that's what makes it through the, the, the Senate side and the finance side. I think it is. I think there's a lot of agreement that that we can't start cutting back now in the middle of a, of a of a pretty major economic downturn caused by the pandemic. I think it's the right way to go. Mm -hmm. Patty Lundstrom had that uh, same thought as well. This is not the time to be cutting uh, government stuff. Merritt, interestingly, a key part of this was the Republican idea from the winter special session, you might recall, that give a break to low-wage frontline workers. That's part of the bill, certainly. What can House Republicans do with this uh, win? Is there something in it for, for Republicans as well? I think there absolutely is. I mean, uh, certainly as kind of a, a, a fiscal hawk myself, um, I see this budget and I feel seen. Um, <laughs> I think um, um, I, I, that was my uh, millennial imitation there. Uh, I, I was kind of surprised it didn't get more support among Republicans because I kind I felt like the one-time spending, the um, the pandemic stimulus was quite moderate. It, it, I felt like the state recognizes, okay, we have a big influx of federal cash coming in and we recognize that. So we don't have to um, uh, uh, do as much with our own funds. I thought the pay raises were um, moderate, conservative. Um, I felt this was a pretty, again, restrained budget uh, doing what needs to be done uh, with the situation we have, which is unprecedented. So I, I was quite surprised, and I was so surprised at how the leadership of the House caucus was mixed with um, Minority Leader Townsend voting for the budget and Whip and caucus chair Montoya and Dow voting against it. I mm -hmm. found that very surprising. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are um, uh, some reasons, there's certain some, I know there's frustration with other bills that are held up that may have something uh, that may have something to do with it. Uh, but no, I felt I felt like it was a big win. I felt like Republicans got a lot It's a fiscally, uh, I found it to be quite a responsible budget. And mm -hmm. I feel like Republicans should take this as a win and, and say, we worked across the aisle, we have a, a budget that's uh, meets our needs, but maintains um, the cash reserve we need for the next crisis. And we don't know when this pandemic will end. Um, Mary, and, and are, are you comfortable that the plan uh, would use about a billion of the state's 2.7 billion cash reserves for one-time spending? That's pretty big. That's pretty big uh, chunk. You okay with that? 
Um, no, mm-hmm. but given given the numbers that the Republicans have, given uh, the mindset of um, both the Speaker of the House, um, the President Pro Tem of the Senate, and the Governor, um, I think it's the best we could ask for. Okay. So, um, I, I don't I don't love it, but I don't expect I don't expect to love the budget. I'm satisfied with the budget. That makes sense. Hey, Crystal, talk about schools. Oh, go ahead, Eric. My fault. Mm-hmm. Just, just remember about 700 million of that is going to small business aid by the way like there's a huge chunk of it that's right. going directly to helping small so like just to be clear mm-hmm. there's a lot of money going in a lot of different directions uh senator you're exactly right and we're we're talking about 7.4 billion by the way i forgot to mention that number um crystal rebecca dow was just mentioned she had an interesting point that you know her criticism you know was sort of an untargeted approach to boosting spending for schools, saying more money should be directed for the districts that are doing in-person learning. Does she have a point? I um, I don't think that, you know, it, it, you think about targets, right? Or, am I aiming at the red target or the blue target? And I think, you know, in, in-person schools versus non-person schools, mm-hmm. I think the blanket statement of education just needs funding, period is where it's most important. And I don't know, she might have like a personal tick against some of the um, the unions that might be out there or she's not in support of, uh, I, I don't know what her intentions might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that um, it also goes back to just funding education from a K through 12 perspective, just goes back to the priorities of the governor. It's what she promises, what she ran on improving schools. And even through a pandemic, that dedication is definitely there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and if I was to, to kind of comment, you know, holistically at the budget and how does this look, you know, I am, um, you know, in full disclosure, I am uh, a board member of the New Mexico Foundation for Open Government. Some people call them the uh, the IPRA people. Um, and, and I found that um, I'm glad that there's some sense of transparency on how this budget has been formed so far. I am very curious about how capital outlay will be laid out because if people, if there's some type of negotiation of why this budget has been so easy compa- compared to the past, 10 years of compiling the budget, especially in a pandemic, something tells me that capital outlay is going to be ugly. So I'm hoping that there's a, a big sense of transparency, which I know the New Mexico Foundation for Open Government is really, uh, along with Think New Mexico and Common Cause, they're advocating for just full transparency from the beginning for both the budget and the capital outlay process. Absolutely. Good place to finish. We're out of time. Hey, thanks to our panelists. I'm back in a moment. Before we go, we want to provide you a little extra content this week on Thursday afternoon after our taping of The Line. We held a Facebook Live, and we encourage if you're not already following us on Facebook to search us out, NM In Focus, and you'll be able to see when we're doing these Facebook Lives. There's been a lot of immediate attention lately about the rise in violence against Asian Americans, partly due to stereotypes and other... Um, other bad behavior, I guess, is the best way to put it in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, some of it attributed to former President Trump, who often referred to it as the China virus or the Wuhan vi- uh, virus. And we've definitely seen an uptink, uptick not only across the country, but here in New Mexico. Most notably, you had a restaurant in Santa Fe, India Palace, that was vandalized several months ago. Um, with some very uh, racist um, graffiti, amongst other things. And so this is a real big problem that uh, we as a community, as a society, need to get our arms around 
And so Crystal Ciarza, who was part of the line, joined us for that, as well as a guest from the Asian Family Center here in Albuquerque. And it's a really important conversation, one that we thought was important to bring to you here in the podcast as well. Also want to alert you to the fact that on Friday, we had another Facebook Live earlier today with Lori Walden. She's the president and GM of KOAT-TV and the first African-American of any sort, uh, but also the first African-American female to hold that kind of a position in local media here in New Mexico. And so I wanted to talk to her about the importance of diversity here in the media here in New Mexico and why that is important, um, the diversity of faces and voices that are bringing us the stories of our community. So really great conversation. encourage you to go there to Facebook to find that. And I think we're going to go ahead and try to pull that as a special podcast episode for next week as well. So if this is how you take in the show, be looking out for that early next week. But here now is host Gene Grant with that conversation. Hey guys, welcome to a Facebook Live. We're doing one today, Thursday noon. We're doing another one tomorrow at noon Friday. I'll talk about that at the end of this. However, right now I want to concentrate on something that has been a problem in our country for quite a while. And this is the idea of Asian Americans facing racist violence here in our country and a little bit here in New Mexico as well. It all started, of course, uh, when the pandemic started and suddenly, you know, China was blamed and anyone of Asian descent suddenly is a guilty party as well. We don't know why these things happen. We're going to talk about that. It's just a bizarre situation. Let me give a couple of facts where I introduce our guests. New York NYPD reported that hate crimes motivated by anti-Asian sentiment jumped 1,900% in New York City in 2020. 1,900%. All right. There's a group out called Stop AAPI Hate, you know, Asian American Hate, a reporting database, has received 2,800 reports of anti-Asian discrimination between March 19th and December 31st last year. Uh, the violence has continued into 2021. There's been a lot of reporting on it. We have an executive order signed by now President Joe Biden uh, denouncing anti-Asian discrimination shortly after taking office. So there's going to be difficulties here. It's happening all over, especially places like San Francisco. I can't quite figure out why that is, but we'll talk about that. So let me welcome Crystal Ciarza from Ciarza Social Media. She is one of our regular panelists on New Mexico in Focus. I appreciate her joining us today. And also Sachi Watasi. She is the executive director of the New Mexico, oh, I lost my page here, sorry. Um, Mexico Asian, I'm oh, sorry, give me the, Sachi, give me the name of the organization again, if you yeah, want, sorry about that. No worries, it's the New Mexico Asian Family Center. Thank you, I didn't want to mess that up. I'd rather have you say it. And you've been the executive director there. Let's start with you. Um, your sense of what you're seeing, we'll talk local here in a minute, but let's talk the broader issue of why this is happening in the first place, but then also awareness. Why is, I'm annoyed that there just doesn't seem to be enough awareness of this issue, even given the numbers I just sort of laid out, you would think this would be front page news across the country. Why, why isn't it? Um, I mean, I think we're deeply, I mean, watching these, watching what we're seeing is it's deeply saddening, but it's also not at all surprising um, mm -hmm. because this kind of like 
white supremacy has always benefited from xenophobia and this kind of behavior. And I think that we've seen this kind of violence committed towards our communities for, for a long time, even before um, the coronavirus. And I think um, there's also the, the model minority myth, which is a myth that you know talks about Asians being like the best minority and not actually targeted by a lot of this kind of violence. But mm -hmm. because of that myth, um, I think that that is, that is a huge reason why this isn't widespread knowledge um, and this isn't seen as something that is important to talk about or see or um, notice. And it, and it isn't top of the, um, of the news regularly until now. So. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate you saying until now because Crystal, as you know, I mean, this has been going on since last, you know, February, March. And it just seems like I, if I go back to a search on my online here, you can see lots of stories from the last four days, but you don't find many from last year. So I ask again, what is the disconnect here where violence is being, you know, visited upon our citizens and no one seems to kind of get angry enough about it? I think, um, and and I'm also putting on a hat as the the volunteer executive director as the new of the new Asian Business Collaborative, mm -hmm. which during it came out of the pandemic because of not only you know lack of resources for Asian businesses, but because of situations like this where they've been targeted and and vandalized because of their race. Mm -hmm. And I, I I think the reason why we um, started to speak up as an Asian as an Api community, Api standing for Asian and Pacific Islander, is that uh, we're tired. We're just tired of seeing the disrespect towards our grandparents, towards our parents, towards our elders, mm -hmm. um, and and we are sometimes even going against the norm of, of what we're used to as an Asian culture, which is actually speaking up. The amount of respect that is ingrained in a lot of our different cultures um, is so deep that we are just, I think our generation of Asians now, um, the second and third generation, we're just tired of it. And, and I also, you know, we have to give credit to the communities of color that started to stand up for themselves because it started to open up those pathways. And like I kind of said on, on, on the one more thing on New Mexico and focused uh, just a second ago, I said, you know, even though I'm glad that those communities of color have opened those avenues for us, I'm also surprised that they haven't banded closer together with us too. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's us as an Asian community in New Mexico that needs to not be as divided or if whether or not, you know, our legislators, our communities, um, our, our, um, our, our, our loud leaders, our key influencers in our, our, our market need to stop thinking that it's only two major um, minority groups in New Mexico. In fact, it's actually three, and that's right. Asian, Hispanic, and and Black. Or oh, four. I'm sorry, N mm -hmm. Native, Asian, Hispanic, and Black. Like mm -hmm. we're here too. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. That's a good point. And let's you know, Ms. Watase, You know, this goes. This problem goes back to the 19th and 20th centuries. It's not as if this is like a, a 2020 problem. Uh, that you know, suddenly we're all sort of like we don't know how this has been happening. So you've got something going on for so long, I would have expected that when you've got this level of violence, this level of stress, this level of things happening in a community, that to Crystal's point, other communities would rally at this point. W would you like to see something like that happen as well? Yeah, I think so. I, th I mean, I think it's really important for our communities to come together and, and support each other um, when this kind of violence occurs. And I think, 
um, violence against any any racial group is violence against all of these racial groups. And um, I think it's incredibly important that we are there in solidarity with one another. I mean, we've seen, of course, so much anti-Black racism in this country. And, um, and it's also our responsibility as Asian Americans and Asians to be um, working in solidarity with that movement. I think it is, you know, violence against any group based on their race or ethnicity or language ability or mm -hmm. um, color of their skin is incredibly, incredibly damaging to our communities. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it would be great if, you know, we all rally together and fight all of these kinds of forms of violence. Are you getting reports of uh, any local situations here at, at the organization? Are you getting complaints? Um, yeah, I mean, we always have like our yeah. agency is a direct service agency. So we we work closely with the community um, on, you know, victims of crime, victims of domestic violence or sexual violence, um, you know, providing basic um, access to basic needs, resource navigation, et cetera. And so we do have a lot of clients who come to us and share with us instances of um, violence towards them. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen this not just recently, but for years, um, including racism towards Muslim women on the tra public transportation, right. uh, harassment where people do not step in and do not um, intervene. We've seen, you know, uh, recently a client who works at a um, massage parlor who's, who, and one of the clients refused to um, put on a mask and then physically assaulted the, our, our client. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've seen a lot of these kinds of forms of harassment, the harass, uh, vandalism, vandalism, vandalism on the Taste of India restaurant mm -hmm. in Albuquerque around like four times last year, I think, you know, there, there's so many instances of, of this and um, we've seen it come up time and time again. Mm -hmm. and yeah, Please. Sorry, and to comment on the Asian business community perspective, um, the Taste of India situation was an example of how local leaders started to recognize that there needed to be changed. In fact, um, APD reached out to the Asian Business Collaborative asking to say, how can we support these Asian businesses, especially with the crimes hmm. that, that are written? And so we reached out, ABC reached out to the Taste of India and they said, you know, we're just frustrated that we have to take matters into our own hands. Right. Um, and, you know, security and, and protocol has, has just been so difficult, especially for a small business. But what people don't understand is that some of these small business owners, this is their paycheck, this is their livelihood. They're not you know, the highly educated, or they may be the highly educated, um, you know, Asians that that uh, we hear about in demographics and statistics, but they're still making a living off of their businesses. Right. And then to add the racial discrimination on top of that just makes a really unhealthy situation. Yeah, exactly right. You know, I keep thinking about Crystal, this idea of Asian Americans being perceived as the, you know, perpetual, you know, foreigners, like, you know what I mean? Like not quite Americans. You hear this kind of foolishness from, you know, ignorant people all the time. I don't understand how this has continued to last in our country. I, I, I honestly, it just really, you know, the, the level of ignorance on display here when you've got 90 year olds being assaulted because of a pandemic. I mean, how, how do you punch through to someone like that, that that's willing to assault an elder for gosh sake? I mean, is it jail time? Is it, you know, education? Yeah. What, what's, what's, the, what's the way? 
I um I think about the actual founder of the New Mexico Asian Family Center. Um mm-hmm. and I and she's she was my aunt, she was my mentor, which is Dr. Adelomar Alcantara or Auntie Deli, as many of us in the Asian community know. And I think she mm-hmm. answered this best when she won the Cici Puede Award during the Cesar Chavez celebration before she passed away. And she says, our generation, meaning the second and third generation, has to fight. We have Mm -hmm. to fight back. We have to say something. We have to make that institutional change against racism because those elders that are consistently being threatened, if they were not grown, they they were not influenced to to speak up the way that we are, um, Mm -hmm. especially in our communities. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I, I think about that speech so much because it's just resonated with me. Um, and it, it became a big part of the Asian Family Center when she started it because she was just tired of seeing how so many people were discriminated um, just because uh, and the domestic violence issues and the sexual assault issues and and the uh, the persecutions that they would they would constantly receive. Mm-hmm. And um, and and also too, I think it's it's awareness. You know, education and awareness is a big thing. And and. Um, myself and uh, along with uh, Khalil, uh, the, one of the mm-hmm. Mexico PBS contributors, he had asked me the same question of like, what do you do whenever you have communities that are trying to learn about diversity, but they don't know how to address it and they don't know how, what to do to make that change? I say, educate yourself. Educate yourself on a situation where um, you know that you're you're willing to to make a change and you're willing to spend the time to learn more about the culture rather than just saying, I have a cousin or I'm married to a Japanese person or I'm married mm-hmm. to a Filipina, so I know about the culture. That's right. not the case. It's take the time to actually better educate yourself. Mm-hmm. We've had that experience right here on the show, haven't we? So yeah, when people think they proximity gives them, you know, some kind of license. It's really yeah. uh, quite something. <laughs> proximity is one thing. And I, and I do appreciate mm-hmm. that when that happens, when, you know, you say that I'm, I'm engulfed in that culture, but there's a difference between claiming that you're an expert versus actually embracing yourself into that, into that community and, and being a part and being, um, and so vocal. Like, for example, one of the uh, Asian American Association of New Mexico board members that passed away was actually a, a, a Caucasian man. Uh, he had advocated for a cultural center that we've been trying to build here in Albuquerque. Um, and he embraced the culture. He spent the time with the community. And that's a better way to educate yourself. So, mm-hmm. and, and Sachi, I know that we we both have been working on advocating for a cultural center here in Albuquerque, uh, and we want to do it right because we want to make sure that the people that work with us um, are are very well versed in our culture rather than just kind of kind of coming from the outside mm-hmm. in. It'd be a great addition to the city. I mean, where, where do things stand now? Uh, uh, is it moving along? Sachi, do you do you have a, a better update? Because I wasn't on the last meeting. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think we're 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 in the process of um, writing an RFP that mm-hmm. will, you know, then go out to the community to see who can be contracted to be the planners for the building, um, and then we'll we'll you know go through a community engagement process and and work with our partners, um, many of which are involved already in the steering committee, um, mm-hmm. to kind of plan how we're going to do this and make sure that we're doing it directly in response to our community and what the needs are. Mm-hmm. That's that. I have to say again, I think it would be a great addition to the city. Uh, let me go back to something that uh, we can't breeze over. And Crystal mentioned this, and that is the rhetoric that started this whole thing from our previous president, those incendiary comments. 
it, it can't be let go for this conversation because that is really where a lot of this started. And I mentioned the uh, Stop AAPI uh, Hate uh, site. And there's a professor of Asian American studies at San Francisco State University. He gives this quote about the, you know, why the Chinese virus and subsequent hate speech uh, has, has been a problem. Quote, it gives people license to attack us. The current spate of attacks on our elderly is part of how that rhetoric has impacted the broader population. I mean, I find that very frightening that, you know, that elders are being attacked over a president's rhetoric. There's something about that that is so unseemly, so wrong on so many levels. And I have to say again, last late summer, last fall, I really didn't hear a lot of uh, MSNBC, CNN, you know, whatever, people really grinding on this issue to find some solutions. Is the fourth, Crystal, in your mind, is the fourth estate somewhat of a, of a problem on this issue as well? Um, I think it's, um, it, it goes back to, I know that the media, especially being a person in the media, I, mm -hmm. I, I understand that the visibility, you don't know if a story is a story unless somebody speaks up about it. Right. And so I think our communities are also responsible for not speaking enough about it, mm -hmm. um, especially since, um, you know, I was reading a couple articles on, on what's been happening is that it's the younger generation that has been actually standing up and filming some of these these terrorist acts or these these horrible acts of violence because they were willing to pull out their cell phone mm -hmm. um, and the generational gaps that we have, especially with our seniors. And, and it does, it, it genuinely breaks my heart that our seniors don't feel like they should speak up until it's it's absolutely at the end or it might be, it might be too late, they might be gone. And so, um, you know, and, and also to this whole rhetoric of the Chinese virus always just pisses me off. Uh, beyond beyond belief because um, it created an opportunity where it's not just Chinese it's it's everybody in the Asian community that it right. opened the door for that type of um, negative racism and rhetoric where um, you know uh, Asian restaurants in Rio Rancho were getting phone calls from the public because they said mm -hmm. you know close down your doors because you guys are causing the virus even Filipinos you know, we're, we're not really very close to China or even, you know, that we are in relationship to the continent, but sure. um, it was just really frustrating that even Filipinos felt threatened to be Asian. And, and I think what's the, the most important, uh, the most unfortunate part for me is that we are always very proud to be different. You know, mm -hmm. we are very proud to be Filipino. We're very proud to be Japanese or, or whatever our culture might mm -hmm. be. And that wording of Chinese virus gives us doubt to be proud of who we are. I hate that. And I, I wanna change that that mindset tomorrow. Yeah. Now, yeah. yeah. Ms. Matasi, feel free to pick up on that as well. Your feelings on what uh, Crystal just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is incredibly divisive. It also mm -hmm. is, you know, I think that that, that phrasing you shared um, from reading from that website is incredibly, real like our the the phrasing gave license for people to mm -hmm. then act in the way that they were acting and and act on the racist behavior that they already had internalized within them or were believing already so you know that rhetoric really was just the go-ahead for all of these um, sentiments to come out that already existed and were already coming out but weren't being nobody was paying attention to them right is, is there a hollywood angle here um what i mean by that is you know you think about movies that have had great success like crazy rich asians and bling empire on netflix 
And I'm, I'm still on this idea of perception. It, where, does, where does Hollywood fit into this for you, Crystal, and, and, and this idea of perception of Asian and Pacific Islanders here in our, in our country? I don't know about Sachi, but the fact that I'm 34 and, you know, 20 years ago when I was watching, you know, MTV and VH1, if you saw an Asian person on television, we were like, oh, look, 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 that's cool. There's an Asian person on television because, um, you know, we're the 80s and 90s are the children of the the massive immigration wave um, that happened in the 70s and 80s during, you know, Jimmy Carter, post-Vietnam, Ronald Reagan, and, you know, those those flexible times of, of immigration. And so, of course, we as children didn't see that growing up uh, on television. And I, I was even, you know, talking to my son, who's always a subject on any of the New Mexico focus shows. And I said mm-hmm. we were watching something where it wasn't even anime. It was like Henry Golding, who's the most beautiful Asian actor <laughs> that's out there. And um, other individuals that were uh, on a show. And I just can't remember what, what specific show it was. And I looked over to him and he said, Jonathan, this is an all Asian cast. When I was growing up, when I was your age, we didn't have anything like that. And and even Darren Chris uh, from the Bay Area, when he said, I know that I'm a small part of the Asian movement because he's he's half Filipino. He goes, even though I'm not uh, a full Asian American, I feel like I'm a part of this entire movement being a kid from a a woman in Cebu, Philippines, a, a feisty Filipina from Cebu, Philippines. I feel like this is a really exciting time to actually finally have Asian representation in our media or in our in the entertainment industry. The entertainment industry or the Asian actors are doing a very, very good job of, of advocating to stop the hate. And mm-hmm. I continue that more of them do, but not just from the Asian community uh, on Hollywood. I think there absolutely should be more um, races um, banding together in support of the Asian community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't thank you enough for spending some time. I, I don't want to lose a big point that uh, Crystal made earlier, and that is some support, some empathy, some understanding from other minority groups here in our country to band together. I mean, if an assault on one is an, an assault on us all. I thought that was the, you know, <laughs> that was the line from years ago, and we, we need to be consistent with that. And I would challenge folks out there in the African-American community and other communities to kind of open your eyes a little bit here and see what's going on. We had it. We had that restaurant in Santa Fe that was, uh, you know, had violence meted upon the building. We've got a lot of this going on around us, and this idea to kind of just turn a blind eye and just, you know, they're Asian folks. They're all successful. They'll get over it. They'll figure it out. We got to get over. We got to get past all that. We have to get past all that. So I'm personally asking for all of us to open our eyes, speak up when you see something or somebody says something in an office environment or anything else. I think it's on all of us. Um, Sachi Watasi and Crystal Sierra, thank you both so much for spending some time on this. This is going to be a continuing discussion. This is not a one-time deal. Uh, obviously, this is not going to go away after this segment, so we need to stay on top of this uh, here at New Mexico PBS as well. So thank you both, though, for spending some time and educating us on this issue. Thanks, Gene. Absolutely. As always, we'll leave you with some final thoughts from host Gene Grant. This week, it's about the color coding system we alluded to earlier in terms of the reopening of the state economy in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. New color added this week, that is turquoise. Very New Mexico way to go about it for sure. Uh, But Gene Grant has some thoughts about these new changes and adaptations to the reopening plan here in New Mexico. So we'll leave you with that. 
We hope you have a fabulous weekend. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back at you again next week. Turquoise. That was a surprise. Were you like me on Wednesday when you first saw the notice from the governor that on that very day we were sort of flinging the doors open because we were now turquoise? Now, whatever the color, it was a bit of good news on the heels of the snow, ice, and cold temps in the area recently. And getting north to 60 degrees certainly helped that as well. Now, whatever the details may be, it does feel like a corner has been turned, or at least we're coming up on one. And the timing couldn't be better because there's reporting out there that the nation could see a pretty robust economic recovery once we truly get on top of this virus. Our local businesses are ready. They've slogged through a tough season and stimulus money is itching to be spent, a lot of it.